What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. It is January 20th and uh, it's a pretty, pretty big day in America. New inauguration, first female vice president inaugurated. Um, and whether you're happy about these things or not happy about these things, they're new things and they're different. And I'm a big believer that change is natural and change is good and things are always changing. So if we're trying to hold on to things as they are, then you're actually swimming upstream and trying to fight against the current of life. Um, I'm really excited about our show today. This is um, probably one of the, uh, I don't know how to describe, I don't want to say successful because I think success is uh, independently measured, but one of the most iconic uh, voices to come on this show, somebody who has built an iconic worldwide brand that has impacted millions of lives um, and done things that I think most of us aspire to do. So I don't want to spend too much time talking before that, but I, what I do want to share is um this space that we get to cultivate here on this podcast is always a, a space that I want to cultivate for learning, for growth, for expansion. So I hope in this conversation, you really are able to, to take what um, my guest brings and actually apply it to your own life. Instead of just hearing it as his stories or his lessons, actually look at how you can apply these things to your life so you can actually grow and start living more of the life you want to live. And so one day you can go on maybe a show or write a book and, and tell stories and think back to this moment as a moment that something changed for you. My guest today was born in 1935. That alone is... Um, it's very cool and impressive, which means to me, he has seen a lot. He has seen the world change in so many ways. And he was, he founded with his late brother Reebok in 1958. He also recently has a book that came out called Shoemaker. He is married. I got to meet his wife for a moment who helped him get here and uh, assisted us with creating this. Joe Foster, welcome to the Dream Mason podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for the invite, Alex. It's, uh, it's good to be here and it's good to talk to you, especially on this day, which is a new day for America. Indeed it is. So good to talk to you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Um, and you shared with me before we, we hopped on here, you're in the middle of, you live in the middle of France or you're in France right now? We are in France right now. Yes, we're, we're in, but we're not in lockdown in France because it's the UK that's locked down. So it's difficult to travel backwards and forwards. We normally spend some time in the UK and spend some time here in France. Um, we have a nice property, which is right in the middle of France. Very nice. quiet. It's a bit like the English Lake District, which is very nice. But there's no traffic here. So you, you can drive your car very nicely. No traffic, apart from the tractors. So it's, it's a farming <laughs> area. So we, we bump into tractors. Well, not literally bump into tractors, but we, we meet a lot of tractors uh, when, when we're driving around. But it's nice, nice to be here. A bit cool. But it's nice, but warmer than, better than being in the UK. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I, I really relish and um, admire being able to talk with people that like just simply have more years than I do. Um, one, of my, one of my saddest things is that I miss my grandparents because I don't have those close relationships with an older generation that I get to learn from and, and hear their stories. And so I, I'm always excited to have conversations like this. Um, 
because you've seen, you've simply because of years been able to see the world in ways that, that so many people haven't. And you've lived through, you know, you were young clearly, but you, you lived through World War II. You saw the various aspects of the Cold War. You saw tons of leaders of many different countries. You've seen countries rise and fall. You've, you've seen, you know, um, many sicknesses happen in the world. You've seen things like Vietnam. Um, I'm curious how, for you, how the year 2020 what that was like for you and your family and and if there was anything different about it versus like what you saw in the past well i think that um as you said I, i've been around a long time <laughs> we've done a lot of things and mm -hmm. uh, i did go through world war ii but when you come to 2020 <clears throat> the one the one thing that uh, has stopped is travel because over my uh, over my life and certainly through through the whole of my existence with reebok i traveled I traveled around the world about three times a year for 10 years. So I traveled a lot, met a lot of people, and we have a lot of friends. So 2020, what it's done, it stopped that travel. And that's the frustration, really. However, the big thing about it is what we're doing today. It has advanced technology tremendously. COVID may have stopped travel, but my word, technology has improved again tremendously. And we can do what we're doing now. We're in San Diego. We're in the middle of France. And that is, well, thousands of miles. We're probably talking about five to 7,000 miles away. And we get a perfect picture. We can talk. When I, when I was younger, when we were doing Reebok, when we set up Reebok in 1958, I mean, I was only traveling locally at first. But then, you know, we, you in, in the mid-60s, I'm flying. I'm going around the world. I'm doing things. And uh, I had to do that. We didn't have computers. We didn't have mobile phones. The best thing I had was a calculator, and that was it. So everything had to be done. You could write a letter. You probably couldn't even expect it to arrive, though. And if it did, you were writing your second letter before you got a reply to your first letter. So things, it may have taken two weeks to write a letter, have it sent off. In fact, part of, part of the book explains we, when we went with uh, a guy called Shu Lang in, uh, in Philadelphia. And the letters were going backwards and forwards, but there were so many things that you just tripped over because of time. And we're doing this and somebody's thinking you're doing something else. So, yes, 2020 has been different. But what we are in now with uh, technology, it's incredible. Are you, are you hopeful for the future? Are you scared for the future? What do you, what do you, what's your personal feeling about what's kind of coming down the road? Never scared for the future. Full of hope, full of optimism. That, that's where it is. And uh, I mean, the, the one thing about America, and I loved America, I've been going there, been going since 1968, and we're traveling in and out and around. And the optimism is always there in America. Wonderful people, full of energy. And that's why I knew I had to go there with Reebok. It's that energy. And well, it, it, it's, it's a place where everything starts that really counts. And when it starts in America, we knew if we did America, it would travel the rest of the world, as it did. Um, if you think of Europe, we've, we think of maybe 20 nations, I think now are in the <laughs> EU, 27. Uh, and they've all got different languages, different cultures. Okay, there are different cultures in, in, in the States, a lot of different cultures. Uh, but by and large, you can say this is the same language. So you can get your message across uh, 
370, 400 million people. So, you know, it's, uh, for me, it's optimism. And I, and I think America just had a big scare, obviously, which has been quite interesting, quite interesting. And, and, but, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, when you, when you think about it, you know, free speech, freedom of speech, that's, you know, there's always a danger in there. But, uh, sure. but when you, it's more dangerous if you stop people speaking. So that optimism and that, uh, that market is so brilliant. So, yes, for me, I'm optimistic. We, we've, we've, had, we've just been invited. Yesterday, we were invited to go to a friend who's down there in, uh, is it Montecito? Montecito, Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, Montecito. Nice. Yeah. He's, got a, he's got a nice beach uh, cottage for us to stay in when we arrive. So it's great. <laughs> and it's that sort of welcoming. I've always been welcomed when I've come into America. So it's, it is, for me, Yes, I'm optimistic, and I think the future is good, especially now with technology and where that's going. And of course, most of this is is led from the USA. I love that. I love it, and it's great to hear because I think hearing it, you know, from being I just turned thirty nine, and from my life and my perspective, it's sometimes hard to see the optimism. I try to, you know, I practice being optimistic. I try to look for the the opportunities and situations and but based on the life i've seen like 2020 and what's happened in america recently has um has made it tough to see some of those things so i i do i really appreciate seeing someone who has more you know you have more of a purview you've seen more you have a bigger scope to look through giving that um sharing that hope um you started your business with your brother yes and um I'm, you know, I, I know, can you tell us a little bit about like, what was, was there a moment where you said, we got to start a shoe company? Was it an accident? How did it happen? <clears throat> well, the, the story is quite long and Shoemaker, the book is there to tell the story because so many, um, there are so many stories you, you can look on, uh, oh, well, I've only computers and you can look for Reebok and there's so many different stories of how did Reebok start? Well, Reebok actually started with my, it's part of the family. The family company was J.W. Foster, became J.W. Foster and Sons, but that's my grandfather. He started, he, he made a pair of shoes for himself, spiked, spiked shoes for running in 1895. Now, that's a long, long way back. <laughs> Much farther than even myself. <laughs> but, uh, and and he, he is credited somewhat with pioneering the spike running shoe. Uh, and, Although the people may have been making spike running shoes, he, he was he was brilliant. I mean, he he knew how to influence. He knew how that by giving spikes to people who were winning winning races, that he would get his audience and he would sell spikes. And he did. He sold his track shoes all around the world, including America. We, um, we eventually had uh, we had an agreement with Yale University with somebody called Bob Wright. Um, no, it was Bob G and Jack and uh, what was Ryan's name? Frank Ray, Frank Ray. Julie's my uh, my external hard drive. <laughs> I love it. I love the partnership. I love that you're yeah. looking at her and she's giving you what you need and just supporting you. It's she great. <laughs> she's heard the story so many times that she knows it better than I do. <laughs> but uh, so it started with my grandfather. And where did he get his idea from? Well, we think, and in fact, we know very well, he got his idea from his grandfather, which is taking this back a long way again. And because his grandfather was a cobbler. He used to repair shoes. Apart from repairing shoes, he also used to repair cricket boots. I know cricket's not big in, in America, but cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. 
And he used to repair those. And I'm sure that my grandfather said, why have you got spikes in the bottom of these boots? And the obvious answer was, well, it gives them grip so they don't slip when they're playing, when they're batting or they're bowling or they're in the field. And I think that triggered something because he was a member of his local running club. <clears throat> and he wasn't a good runner. He wasn't a big guy. But he, uh, he was sort of halfway down the field on the races. But he's, he made his pair of shoes. And he, he came in a very unlikely second, which <laughs> was like a miracle. And, and I don't know whether he was bullied into making shoes for his, uh, his teammates or, or whether they persuaded him. But uh, that was the beginning of his business. But his business really took off as a business in the 1900s, the early 1900s. And by 1904, he had world records. And he'd also got many Olympic gold medal winners. But his Belle Epoque was the 20s. During the 20s, he, uh, he supplied almost every Olympic team, the Americans, you name it. He supplied them all. And uh, he had many gold medals. I don't know if you are aware of the film Chariots of Fire. I've, I don't think I've ever seen it, but I, I'm aware of it. Yeah. You're aware of it. Well, Chariots of Fire, there were three uh, English runners, Eric Liddell, uh, Harold Abrams and Lord Burley, and they all won gold medals during the 20s. And Chariots of Fire just immortalized them as gold medal winners, and that was it. But he made those shoes. So he made the shoes that they actually won the gold medals in. Um, he died, though, in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. But I happened to be born on his birthday in 1935, on the 18th of May. So my grandmother, Oh, I had to be called Joe after my grandfather. Mm -hmm. So that's why I am Joe Foster. <clears throat> my grandfather was Joe Foster. And, uh, okay, I mean, 1935, we're just uh, four years away from World War II. So what do I remember? Bits and pieces, not too much. Mm -hmm. But I do remember those war years when we had blackout and we could look at the uh, nearest city, which was Manchester, and uh, we, we could hear the bombs dropping. We could see the, the flames. Those are memories that you have during that period. Um, but it wasn't until, well, 1945, of course, and I'm 10 years old. I know a lot more, lots of things are going on. I don't join the, uh, the company, though, until uh, 1952, it would be. I was 17. Uh, my brother had joined four years earlier. He was two years older than me, but he joined early. I'd been to college and spent a bit more time uh, with education. Uh, but one year of working in the factory, I had to do national service. Um, in America, they had national service at the same. National service meant you had to go away and do two years training in one of the armed forces. I went to the Royal Air Force, the RAF. Jeff went into the army, and he went to Germany. And in Germany, he became aware of Adidas and Puma and what they were doing. So when we came back two years later in uh, 1955, we, we find a company that's failing. So we, we should have been working in, a, in Jamie Foster's, an athletic shoe company. Not only athletic shoes, made shoes for every sport. In fact, the grandfather started making shoes for all the football teams uh, in, in the UK. So it, it should have been a big company, but father and uncle. They just couldn't get on. And to this day, I don't know what their feud was, but they didn't talk with each other. So how do you run a company when the people running it yeah. don't talk to each other? And yeah. we tried. We tried our best to get them to say, look, this is what 
Adidas is doing, we've got to do this, we've got to come on, we've got to do marketing, you know, we must do something. It took us three years. And during that time, we realized it wasn't going to happen. The only way out of this was to set up our own company. You know, it wasn't a choice, it was almost something we had to do. It was fate. There must have been something, some DNA in there that said, we can do it. You know, mm-hmm. I was 23, my brother was 25. We, yeah, we were unbeatable. Who could kill it? Nothing, nothing could happen to us. You know, you're just totally and absolutely uh, um, able to cope with that life, you know, and if it didn't work, so it didn't work. It was like, you know, we'd done two years away from the family. That two years gave us a different perspective on life. And uh, so that was it. 1958, we left the, uh, the parent company to set up our company, which we started off as Mercury Sports Footwear. And it's in the book that we, we had a problem with that. But that's how, we, that's how we got to set up our own company. So you, thanks. I, I, I love that story and how it goes back. It reminds me sometimes that like our simplest ideas, the best ideas are actually already exist and we just have to adapt them, change them, adjust them to make them fit for a new space. Um, and I love that what was the success of your family also was almost the demise in the sense of this legacy of, of shoe wear from a cobbler to the innovation for running shoes. But then your grandfather, sorry, your father and your uncle couldn't communicate. And that was like the breakdown and it had to be like rebuilt by you and your brother. Um, uh, what for you and your brother, what was in building Reebok, what was the biggest challenge or fear that you encountered that, like, or what was there one, a place where you maybe had doubts or got scared of what was possible as you were, as you were building the company? I, I don't think we ever got scared. I think we were young enough at that time to, uh, to, to not worry about it. Okay, we had some moments. We had some moments when somebody tried to take us out of business and we, uh, we, we succeeded in getting through that. I don't think we ever thought that uh, we would get shut down, although it was a very serious time. When you have no money, it's difficult. And there are times when you, you're, you're trying to stretch people out to pay them. And uh, as it goes in the book, and it, it was a very unusual person that took us to, uh, to court with this one. But uh, that was probably one of our scariest moments, if we, if we would have a scary moment. Um, and we, do, we did have to rely then upon a good lawyer. And by good fortune, we found a very good lawyer. <laughs> And he was a good lawyer. He, he worked with me for a lot of the time that I was at Reebok, and we set up a lot of companies uh, with him. And uh, I learned a lot from him. He was really good. But um, apart from that, okay, we, we're 18 months into our business when our accountant tells us, uh, you better, you know, you're doing pretty well. You, you'd better get that name Mercury registered. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, why? He said, well, if somebody else starts making shoes and decides that that Mercury brand looks good, they'll start making under your name and nothing you can do about it. Oh, right. You have to spend a lot of money on court cases proving that you were the first. Mm-hmm. So we went to try to get the name registered and I saw a patent agent and the agent uh, checked this out and said, no, it's, it's registered. Oh. <laughs> and he said, bring it in. You have to change your name. In fact, they offered, they offered the name to us for £1,000. And a thousand pounds was like probably asking you, have you got a million pounds? You know, it's okay. like a million dollars a day. I mean, okay, it's not a big amount today. 
you know, it's a, but in those days, if you don't have anything like that, so we had nothing. So he said, well, if you can't buy it, you're going to have to bring me some names and we'll check them with the registrar. Said, don't bring me one. I want 10 names. You know, like, how do you bring 10 names? So we sat down and we got a lot of names of birds and animals. <clears throat> but in 1943, this is during the war, in a, in a race, in a foot race, I, I'm in an 80 yards race. I, I, I won the race and I got a prize. And the prize was a Webster's Dictionary. Now, you know Webster's Dictionary. It's an American Dictionary. Mm-hmm. And uh, why? No, we, we were used to the Oxford English Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary? I don't know. I don't know why I got it ever. But uh, <laughs> this was a day when I was looking through. We got the names down and I'm looking through. I like that letter R. I thought, ah, that's, I've got it. So I'm thumbing through R and I came across Reebok, R-W-E-B-O-K, a small South African gazelle, gazelle. That sort of, ooh, that sounds good. Put that at the top of my list. Now, this is R-W-E-B-O-K. Had it been the Oxford English Dictionary, it would have been R-H. E-B-O-K. I think it would be O-C-K. That would not have been as attractive at all. I'm sure I might have just whizzed past that. But I put this at the top of my list, and I went back to the agent and said, look, I need that. This is the one we need because we need to be in love with it. We just need to be. It's got to be our passion. And as it happened, it was the only one that, uh, that came fully, completely free of any complications. <clears throat> and except for the registrar. The registrar said, well, Reba, we're going to have to put you in part B of the register. And I said, why part B? Well, what's that? He said, well, if somebody comes to me and say they're making running shoes or sports shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop them. Oh. However, 20 years later, the register, <clears throat> the registrar came back and said, we've moved you to the A section because everybody now only knows Reebok is a shoe. There's a... Uh- it's fun. This is still a big problem. When I uh, do business coaching for a lot of people, one of the things I've learned about trademarks and copyrights and all those things is one of the biggest mistakes people still make is they get an idea, they fall in love with it, they start their business, and two, three, four, five, ten years later, they realize, oh, I don't own the name or the brand or the image. Someone else already has it. And then, right. <laughs> right, it would be terrifying. Imagine if you, you know, right, you're like, imagine if you're 20 years into Reebok and then you got sued because someone else. But one of the lessons I learned early was when you get an idea, go look and see if your name and the idea, if you can use it before you get too excited about it. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about, you know, in that time you were developing and now you're looking back, you, you and your brother were entrepreneurs. You, you built a business, you became leaders, you, you, you eventually ran a company. And I would say you were, you know, you're big business owners, not just entrepreneurs. But when you, when you look back, what do you think made you to, you and your brother successful as entrepreneurs? And what do you look and when you look back at that, like how could that help entrepreneurs now? <clears throat> well, I, I think you have to have a tremendous amount of luck. Mm-hmm. Luck has to be on your side. Yeah. We were in running and we needed America. And going to America, yeah, a lot of coach, a lot of uh colleges and universities and they always had coach and so that was big in america it was already big but what happened in in the late 60s and all through the 70s the running category took off all of a sudden everybody in america wanted to be wanted to go running 
doing 10Ks, 5, 5Ks, whatever. Running grew, as did the uh, magazine Runner's World. And, and Runner's World helped the, runner, the, the running scene to really grow, and it helped Nike to grow because Nike were in the running scene at that time. So that was a lot that where we were there at that time, that period of time. And, and later on, there was a period of time with uh, aerobics that really pushed Reebok into the stratosphere. But <clears throat> so what makes, what makes it different? I, I think what makes any, any difference is that you've got to really look at what you're doing. And if you can recognize the fact that you know the sport, you know the product, you know it well, you, you've got something that is tangible there. You know it's all well. And then you, you've got to also be willing to uh, know who your customer is work with your customer, develop the product with your customer. So uh, I started off, as many people do, trying to sell to the sports stores. And the sports stores were saying to me, I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And I took that question, why do I need Reebok? Why? And they didn't. They, 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 was, they were supplying shoes to athletes. They had them on the shelf, but they weren't Reebok. So, it dawned on me because we used to go out to race meetings and sell out to the back of the car. And I realized that these are my customers. So it's knowing your customer. And so we were, we were a part of athletics. We weren't just a lot of people in the UK, other people made running shoes and other, but they, they were footwear manufacturers and, and they just manufactured a product, but they were not connected to that sport. And I think, the important thing is to be connected to the sport right from the point you know everybody and you, you get a, a reputation. And, and we did get a reputation. And our reputation, I think we were, we were fighting well above our weight. We were, we were bringing stuff in and we were doing so good. And people were asking, like, how did you net this? And, and so people were coming to us and, can you make us some shoes? Can you? So knowing your business and knowing it well, I think. and then. Throughout all the problems you can get, and we did get problems, you just got to stick with it. It's knowing that uh, there's a way through. We had a distributor in the UK that uh, unfortunately went out of business, and he was, he was doing our distribution in the UK before I'd managed to build the global side, and he owed us a lot of money. So I had to go down to his place bring all the shoes back, and then we had to get together and start selling direct to, sh to schools, clubs. We just made a big issue out of how do we sell our shoes. And, in fact, we got more money for our shoes by taking them back and selling them direct. Um, we got out of that problem, which could have been a, a really difficult one. Uh, if the bank had gotten to know about it, <laughs> I think we would have been sunk. But uh, so you, you look at it and you can see, well, and every problem you get, you've got to find out how can I turn this around to be an advantage? Mm. And so we had a number of you know, small problems, like uh, athletes, uh, they, they were writing into us. Well, certainly the wives were writing into us, saying that all the socks were turning blue. And uh, we, we, we've been in Lancashire, where we were north of England, it's quite wet. And a lot of people do cross country, and but, so your shoes get wet. We'd had no problem with this leather before. So I went back to our tannery and said, what's happening? And they threw their hands up and admitted they had not washed out all the excess dye when they were dyeing the leathers. Oh. So I had to go back to all these runners. And I said, look, 
it, when you buy your next pair, uh, we'll, we'll give you a, a big discount. We'll give, I think I said 25% off, or it might have been more, it might have been a third off. And, but what I did do, I enclosed two pairs of socks in each reply. You got blue, but they were blue yeah. socks. <laughs> I sent them blue socks. So, so <laughs> they couldn't complain that they turned blue. So, um, but, when I'm, it's I, this is a great you touched on like turn when you encountered problems your attitude was they're an advantage there's an opportunity here which I, I love in like hey we got these complaints we made good by giving new socks we also made the shoes better um the other thing you just touched on is how Reebok was always a company that was innovating like you started with running and then aerobics came in and I remember growing up my earliest memory of Reebok was pumps and Shaquille yeah, yeah. and Sha- and Shaq and Sha- I mean I remember being yeah. a little kid and like I was always a big Michael Jordan fan and obviously Michael Jordan was Nike but Shaq was Reebok and you had the Reebok pumps which was a completely different thing nobody else was doing that um, yeah. and then now in the more mo- more kind of present times Reebok has really b- gone into c- the CrossFit space and. Yeah. And that's the thing that I, I think all longevity companies find ways to innovate and navigate. It's tough to do the same thing one way forever. Um, but there's something also unique that you, you guys as a company were always willing to like navigate and shift and change and weren't stuck in the, well, this is how we do it. And we have to keep doing it like this. Um, what was that mindset that allowed you to continue to like you know, flow and go to the point where you would go, let's pump up the shoe. Let's put pumps in the shoes. Well, <clears throat> the thing is, with, with your company, you're either driven by manufacturing, you're either driven by the product, or, or, or you're driven by the business, the, the sport that you're into, the, the end user. We were always driven by the end use. What is it? What do they want? So, you know, being able to change I think it's something that we were always willing to do. You know, you, you, I think Adidas were very good in those early days at uh, making a lot of changes. And, you know, we, we could see that they were making changes to sports footwear. You know, the old football boots, soccer boots, were probably a were made of very heavy leather. And because, and they were waterproof. It was called kit leather, but it was waterproof. Um, and that's because the pitches, football pitches, soccer pitches in the UK were usually playing in winter, wet, full of mud. So you had to have this type of boot, or they thought they had to have this type of boot, to stop the water getting in. And Adidas started, uh, they started making it out of lightweight leathers. And this is what brings me back to my grandfather, because I knew very little about his business until after we'd started our own business. And, and we, we became big enough to start looking backwards, say, what happened? We, we knew bits about what he'd done, but nothing came from my father or my uncle <clears throat> working actually in the Foster family. We didn't pick up anything. We had to dig back earlier. And he must have done some very remarkable uh, innovations in his time because he didn't use heavy, uh, heavy leathers, and yet he was supplying, as I said, most of the, uh, the football teams in the, in the UK. I think it was about 90-something teams he had, and that included the big ones, you know, Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, you know, all the big teams he was supplying. But we didn't know that. And so, you know, we'd lost. <clears throat> and it's surprising that gap that we'd lost with my father and uncle being there. Uh, but we'd lost that gap. And so 
it's only on leaving and setting up our own business that we, we decided we needed to look back and we needed to dig into the history. <clears throat> so uh, I think that we knew then that his, uh, his success, I would say, was using influencers, being very much involved with the business. <clears throat> and, I, and I think that's where success comes in. You must be involved. You can't just be a supplier of a product. You may be good at making a product. Uh, you might be a good manufacturer, but unless you have that connection, unless you're in there and you're part of the sport, which in particular happens to be with, with us, we were in sport, of course, it could happen to anybody. <clears throat> it's, I'm sure it's like your, your business now on podcasting. You've got to know the whole business. You've got to know where to go and how to get your audience. You have to know that. It's no good just being able to sit there and talk. Yeah, that's one good thing but you have to know everything else as well. So for us, we, we had to know our business. <clears throat> we, uh, yes, our, our factories, we were in the shoe business, but our business was a sports business. So we were both things. We weren't just making street shoes. In fact, uh, we never made street shoes except now today. Sports influences street. It's fashion. Mm-hmm. When... You know, that time that I referred to with with Shaq and, and the pumps and Jordans, you know, I feel like and you you're you would be able to tell me, but I feel like that was a pretty influential and, and pretty big period of of the shoe industry, right? Shoes became to your point like style and fashion. It wasn't just people didn't just buy these shoes to wear to play sports, they bought them to wear and like keep in shoe boxes and and sell them later. Ooh. But I'm really curious about the like rivalry because when i think back to my childhood there was like kind of a that it feels like a you know it was like reebok or nike at that moment of the 80s and the 90s did you did it feel like that do you have like a you and phil knight kind of thinking about each other and trying to outmaneuver each other or was is that was not not even in the space for you um it wasn't too much in the space for me because uh I knew that once we, once we got the shoes into America, and we did that by getting a five-star shoe in Runner's World. In fact, we got three five-star shoes. And I had Paul Fireman, who said, look, I'll be your distributor if we can get a five-star shoe. And I told him, we, we're going to get a five-star shoe, no doubt. And we did. We got the five-star shoe. That set the scene in America. But I knew I needed, I, I needed the company to be American. It's no good to me. If we've got Paul Fireman there, you run the company. You run America. And, and that, will, that way, I've got the rest of the world. And so Paul, <clears throat> Paul did a very good job with the running. Excellent. And it was a guy called uh, Arnold Martinez. I don't know if you've heard of Arnold. <clears throat> Arnold Martinez, who was a tech rep for us down in, uh, down in L.A. And his wife, Frankie, she was going to these new classes, these aerobic classes. And with her girlfriends and coming back and they were full of it. And Arnold was saying, what goes on there? You know, what is it? What's happening? Um, and she told him. So he said, I've gone have a look at this. And he went down to the next one and he saw the instructor there in running shoes, half the class in running shoes and the other half, no shoes at all. And that struck him. There's a, now, why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics? So we went back to Paul Fireman told Paul Feinberg, and Paul said, no, no, come on. You know, we're doing really good with running. Why do we want to start playing around making a few shoes for girls doing some dancing? 
But Arnold wasn't put off. <laughs> he went round the back, had a word with the production people, and he said, look, this is my idea. Can you make this soft, glove leather, shoe, that women will love, uh, maybe 200 pairs? They did. And he got those 200 pairs around and about down there in Los Angeles, mainly with the instructors, and he got Jane Fonda was wearing them in her videos, her fitness videos, and it just it exploded. It took over. So that was fine. That was going on in America because I knew once, if we got America, really got America, the rest of the world would be easy. And at that time then, so production, I left that with America. And somebody came with the pump, it's their idea, and they came to, uh, to Reebok. Obviously, Reebok BNB, and so Reebok uh, worked on that and got the uh, got the patent rights for it and license rights for it. But this is this is what happens with uh, with design. Lots of people have ideas, uh, and it's then those ideas are brought in. We have two or three different uh, technologies. Uh, I think Hexalite was one, and we had different ones. But of course, it's quite low technology. It's not not very high technology, it's nothing difficult, but of course, to use it and to make, uh, to make it work, you need a volume company. And of course, by that time, Reebok was a volume company. Uh, once the aerobics had taken off, it took, took the company from about $9 million revenue. I think the next one was 30 million next year, and year after that was 90 million, and then 300 million, and then I think it was 900 million in successive years. So the growth was, uh, was fantastic and mainly driven at that time by, by aerobics. And of course, then you bring in the other, the other sports products um, into basketball, and basketball was, again, very successful. But uh, at that point, it takes a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people to run a company of that size. And we, we overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike, became number one, and we were number one in, uh, uh, in, in 1989, when I, I decided that time for me to retire. By that time, I'd become more of an ambassador and I was at 35,000 feet, flying to whatever city, being picked up by a limousine, taken to the best hotel. Um, and when we go out for a nice meal, uh, but the challenge had gone for me then. I didn't, I'd gone through this challenge from being nothing to getting us up into a, a position where we were, well, we were number one, which is brilliant. And so for me, the challenges were different. You, 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 your business is full of lawyers and, uh, <clears throat> and accountants. <laughs> when, when you look back on building this company and the way it grew, like the way it has grown, is there anything that you you know, would have done different or wish you had, that you see now in hindsight that you wish you had like learned before that, that would have changed something for you? <clears throat> I, again, when, when I'm asked that question, I, I find it difficult to say I could change anything when you become the number one company, when you're sure. the number one global sports brand, um, what do you change? Um, so I, I don't think I would have changed. I think, okay, over the years since, Maybe maybe things have changed that uh, we could have done or they could have done differently. Uh, I think uh, Reebok seemed to go into a plateau stage in the mid '90s, um, and then of course sold out to Adidas in 2005. 
I don't think that's been a good fit for Reebok. But, you know, Adidas bought the company to, to grow Adidas. Mm-hmm. And that happened. That's right. That, that's what they put the money down for. They, mm-hmm. they wanted to get the American market, just as I had done earlier. They wanted to advance, and, and I think buying Reebok helped them. Um, I don't think we had anything against Reebok. It's just that uh, the energy then didn't stay in Reebok, and I think it just plateaued for a while. Mm. However, I think over the last uh, five years, they, they started to realize they have to do something, and they, they started an archive, which is good, because a lot of the stuff I had you know, in the loft and in storage, it's now all in Boston. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know why it is that uh, when, when somebody does buy a brand, they just seem to look at it and think, well, we, we've got to make it our, we've got to change things. <clears throat> so they changed the, the lettering and, the, uh, and they changed some of the uh, silhouettes. They, they, they used the Delta. Now, though, they've come back to using the original uh, vector and the original lettering, and they, they make it, they're telling one message, and I think that's so important. That you just keep one message. Mm-hmm. It's like Ford. When I mention Ford, immediately in your mind, you come to that oval disc uh, and you see the lettering. You just, that's it. Yeah. You, you don't see much else. It, ah, Ford. It, and that's what you have to do with a brand. <clears throat> as soon as you start putting different things into it, you confuse people. So I, I think uh, one of the reasons for Reebok probably not growing is this confusion that's been going on. But now they've put it together again. Even though right now they have the brand up for sale or they're proposing to sell it. And Shaq and a couple of other guys are very much interested in buying it, which would, <laughs> which would be very interesting. But <clears throat> I'm a spectator to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, no, I, I, but I'm still like you asked the question before. It's, I'm an optimist, sure. and I, I think Reebok's got another another life coming. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The, mm-hmm. the, you look back, and people like to look back. People like to look back on, like you were saying, yeah. When when new around, it was a pump, and everything was going there. Well, they, these things come back again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they don't go around in circles. They tend to go up in a spiral. Uh, so they come around again, but on a different level, and. Uh, I think this is a very, it's a very interesting business to be in. It, let's say the business now is well over 120 years old, 125, I think it is now. I feel like it is a family business, and uh, <clears throat> and it's got longevity. I think it will it will continue. But would I change anything? Well, as I say, I had left the company by then. You know, mm-hmm. should I stay on? I, I don't think I could have stayed on because you know I'm used to a small company. I'm used to doing things. And when you, when you don't have telephones, you don't have computers, and you're on the road and you're moving, you make decisions. You have to make decisions because you can't put, pick up a phone and talk it over with anybody. It's your decision. And so I was used to that. I was used to, you know, if needs do it, I'll do it. If it's wrong, we'll change it. But we cannot do it. <clears throat> Whereas when you've got a lot of people and you've got lawyers and you've got, so you've got uh, accountants and everybody's in packages, no. So running a, running a big company is something else. Uh, and at that point, I think for me, yeah, I'd, I'd gone through the challenges. To me, there were no real challenges left. I think there are challenges still, but at a different level. <clears throat> Can I ask you a little bit about family and like personal? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm thought of this because your wife has been sitting, supporting you at different moments of this interview. And, um, yes. 
What have you, you know, how long have you been married? 22 years. <laughs> there you go, 22 years. 22 years. Do, <laughs> yes. you, got, um, do you have any children? Yes, uh, Julie's my second wife. Okay. And um, my first wife, uh, <clears throat> well, I was married before we set up the company. Okay. And so, so she had to go with me through selling whatever, a small property that we had to start up the company. And, uh, <clears throat> but the task of uh, going through, oh, the family problems, of course. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our daughter, she died. Um, Sorry of uh, leukemia and uh, <clears throat> i think those challenges because of, i suppose when you're in a business you you know you you have a love and you have a love for that business and you you tend to be consumed in, in many times and this one's a challenge because uh jean was uh, very much able to travel but she didn't want to travel uh except that Towards the end, when we were really successful and we had a lot of um, a lot of Hollywood stars, a lot of A-listers coming to our tennis celebrity tournaments in Monte Carlo, it was very glamorous, very nice times. But uh, I think that when uh, when Kay died, when her daughter died, I think that was a big uh, that was a big wrench for her because she was very close, probably closer than I was because I was doing a lot of work and a lot of travel, and uh, we we took that uh, we took her death in different ways. Yeah, and uh, and I think that ended our our relationship. But uh, unfortunately, since then she has died, and uh, I got married to uh, to Julie because <clears throat> I think one of the things that uh, I certainly missed on, on all the time when I was traveling was somebody to be with. Because you know you can do some wonderful things. You can fly over the uh, painted desert in California. You can fly, do all these different things. You can see these different things. And I, I went into the palace at uh, Monte Carlo and I met with Prince Rainier and had some champagne. And you come back and well, I did that. But be nice to have somebody with you, somebody close to you who you share those things with. And that's probably what I did. Uh, I did miss. Um, and, and now with Julie, Julie will travel everywhere. We, we go everywhere together. If you want me, two tickets. <laughs> <laughs> what in, in two, in two marriages with some children, what do you think if you were, you know, giving advice to people about marriage and business and family and how it all comes together as you, as you look back over the years, is there anything that you would say, um, you learned that we couldn't possibly know when you were younger, but that you look back and that you learned over time? The, the only problem is that, uh, yes, I could probably say you, you should take more care of your family, but then does that take you away from doing the business? And, and if it does, does that mean that you don't do the business? Uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a, certainly in those days, I mean, right now uh, I can talk to you, like we say, we're probably 7,000 miles apart. And we are part from a bit of a, a glitch in, <laughs> earlier on. We we can talk perfectly well, and so you can conduct some business. Uh, I could never do that. Even when I was setting up in in 1979, 1980, uh, with poor firemen, I had to travel. <clears throat> if you don't travel, uh, and the thing is that with Jeff, uh, unfortunately again, Jeff died just as we, we'd set up the deal with Paul Feynman to get things for in America, Jeff, and that gave us another problem. But, but the thing is that um, he just wanted to look after the factory. He was happy doing that. Yeah, he didn't want 
to travel. Didn't want to get involved in sales, marketing, anything. Even in design, I used to do most of designing in the early days. And then we'd bring on a designer and we'd bring, so you, you, it grows. But <clears throat> for me, if you talk about family, I, I think you need a very strong relationship. If, you, if, you, if you're going to run a hard, and that person needs to be with you and close to you. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think, I don't think we had that. We, we've got to look at when I got married first time, we're talking about reasonably just after the war, national service, all your friends were together before you did national service. They all went in similar or different times. They all came out. And that, that group was never there. It wasn't there again. So you came out and you, you, you married the girl that you had been with because national service broke up the normal social fabric at that time. And so you get married. And uh, I didn't know we were going to have a factory and I'd be flying around the world. I didn't know. But it, it was in the blood somewhere. And I had to do it. Um, when I say I had to do it, I, I guess I was driven somewhere to do it. And unfortunately, Gene uh, didn't quite share that, didn't want to travel. But there was no, no other way in, in those days for me. So I, I guess if you can get a very close relationship, it needs to be very close. Otherwise, the relationship is number one, and you just work for somebody. It's a job. Mm -hmm. I, don't think, uh, I don't think I could ever have just stayed with a job, even though my wife did say, why don't you go and get a proper job? <laughs> We're struggling in those early days. <laughs> I think that's a common. Um, I know when I started my business six years ago, um, the relationship I was in, that was often a conversation when you're struggling at the beginning. Why can't you go, just go get a job? Um, but, I, you know, when I think when you think it's like we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have Reebok, we wouldn't have a shoe, you know, shoemaker, your book. We we wouldn't have tons of other companies if people just went and got if all the people just went and got jobs we'd have well right now we just have amazon and everybody would work for amazon um joe thank you so i just want to thank you that you know you thank you for sharing your story here thank you for writing a book so you leave behind a legacy for people to read about it um thanks for sharing like some vulnerable things about your daughter and and your your ex-wife um and and letting your your current wife julie partner with you and be here with me um it's it just feels very, um, it's nice to be with you. It feels very genuine, very real. Um, I really appreciate your knowledge and your wisdom and your willingness to share. Well, <clears throat> that was one of the reasons for writing the book is that you get a lot of people making statements and mm -hmm. they're guessing at something. It, people need to really feel the pressures, the problems, uh, the energy, what drives it, what's the motivation, not just... Uh, well, it, you know, something started here, somebody did this. No, this is how it started. This is what we did. And it's almost blow by blow, piece by piece, uh, that you can put together a journey. And, uh, and I think for me, if people get the right story, and if people learn from that, and we've had a lot of uh, nice responses to the, to the book, uh, and it is doing very well. So uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. To, to talk about it will only spread the word. And um, I, I've got one mission left in life now, I guess. Uh, and that is to make this a number one bestseller. Nice, beautiful. Is The book is, is called Shoemaker. People can buy it anywhere, right? Every, anywhere and everywhere they can find the yeah. book. Um, yeah. And um, 
if people want to like read more about you, do you do, I know you have a sort an Instagram. Do you do social media? Is that, yes. is that a, yes. Well, Julie's brilliant at it. And I, I just need the stories and Julie can do that. We do social media. We do Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah. And Twitter. And LinkedIn. LinkedIn's been very good for us. We, okay. uh, when we first announced the book, we had over 320,000 hits on it, of which 12,000 were from New York itself. So, wow. uh, I'll put all of the links in the show notes for anyone that wants those exact links. I'll put all the links to your social media. Um, is there anything else you feel like you want to share or say to, you know, the listeners who are wanting to improve their lives, wanting to have better relationships with family, wanting to grow businesses or start businesses, anything else you want to kind of end on? Well, I think uh, apart from the fact when they listen to our conversation, they'll pick up something. I think to get the depth of it, if they read the book, I I think in the book, you get my life and you get the lessons. And uh, uh, we have had people write in and say, I'm going to change my business. (laughs) because they, they picked up something from the book. Uh, so I think just reading the book, there's, there are many books. I, I know that Phil Knight, his, his book was a very good book, Shoe Dog, and I like that. And there's an amazing amount of uh, things that we seem to share because he had to go to the Far East, I had to go to the Far East. So we do share a lot. And we, we hadn't met, so we hadn't, we hadn't exchanged notes. <laughs> so... Uh, <clears throat> Whatever Phil Knight thought about uh, to put into his book is so genuine, just as what's in my book is genuine. And uh, yeah, there are many more things in life than what is in the book. There are many, but you you have to have a travel. I I had to have people look at my book and tell me, you know, this is what you need to do. Just tell the story, even though because when I started writing the book, I'm going this way and I'm going this way. This happened and, and this happened as well. So, and, and, and I think though that uh, what we got into the book was the story of Reebok and my, uh, my journey. Beautiful. I love, did you say, I just have to hear that again. Did you say you and Phil Knight have never met? We've never met, no. That's extraordinary. That seems like impossible almost that you two could have never met or crossed paths. That is, well, I, I certainly met with Jeff Johnson, who was his sort of his right hand man, and mm-hmm. his uh, he, uh, Jeff Johnson was the man who thought of Nike and who thought of the swoosh. So Jeff Johnson was there, and I, I met him um, at the exhibition. I think it was at the NSGA show in Chicago. Um, but I, wherever Phil Knight was, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things you either bump into people, you know, and you know, there's quite a bit of. Um, Opposition, like you say, well, you know, I buy Nike or I buy Reebok. Mm-hmm. You don't often come together and say, well, you know, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> no, I never met Phil Knight. One of these days, you never know. I, I think yeah. he's in uh, in Palm Springs or something like that. These <laughs> days. <laughs> it's just it, you. It's just extraordinary that you know. I don't know. There's something not being in that circle. You know, it, it would be like. I don't know if, if you told me that Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan never met, even the right different sports, different things, but you'd be like, of course they had to meet. Um, well, Joe, thank you again for being here. Um, I did want to thank your wife too, for supporting us and helping make this happen. Um, to all the listeners out there, uh, I, I really hope you got value from this. I know there's value for this and, um, share this with a friend, share this episode with a friend, tell somebody about the book shoemaker and, um, 
know that, you know, somebody's made a lot of the mistakes or had a lot of the successes that a lot of us don't need to have or could learn from. Um, and we can like leapfrog some stones and actually help ourselves by learning from people that came before us and did things that are likely much bigger and, and more challenging. Joe, thanks again for being here. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Thank you again. And we will see you next time. Okay. Anytime.